the last few weeks, um, my evenings have been spent um, watching Jesse plan out our garden for the spring. Anybody else started yet? Oh, come on, guys. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Nothing lifts the spirit than planning for a garden. So I'm, I'm watching her kind of plan it out, and she has it planned out to the inch, and then so I, I jump in, you know, and I'm, like, trying to help, and <laughs> I'm trying, like, yeah, that sounds great. I look like an absolute fool. I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. But I found it really fun to research, you know, what, what type of vegetation would work in our climate. Like, it's not just, you know, grab a bunch of tomatoes and they'll all grow. Like, you've got to learn, okay, what tomato will actually thrive here on Graham and Ann. And so I'll, I'll grab a, oh, you know, we should get some of these. These look good. And Jesse's like, no. John, they wouldn't work here. I'm like, I don't know. But, but um, yeah, so different seeds have been coming in, and Jesse has them all stored and collected, and she has them divided on where they're going to go where so that when it's time to plant, it's easy to grab the right ones and, and all that good stuff. And the other day, a bunch of seeds came in, and Olive and, and Adeline thought they would help us get, <laughs> get the seeds out of the packages. And so one of the, one of the packages rips open, of course. And it's, it's these tiny, tiny, tiny black seeds that just spill all over the carpet, of course. And um, I, she told me they were, it's a type of basil. I don't know. I thought there was just basil. Apparently there's other types of basils. So anyway, these basil seeds go all over the carpet and we're able to pick them up. And I, and I grab one and I, and, I, and I hold it up to my eye. And I'm talking like tiny, tiny. And honestly, guys... It looks really boring. It's just a black dot, right? Like there's nothing, there's nothing special about the seed in and of itself. It's just a black dot. But it's what I find inside the seed to be really interesting. You know, as soon as like you're, you're the seeds used to be a part of the plant, then over time the seeds fall off or they're harvested. And then it comes time for planting, so you plant it in the ground. And then you start to take care of it. You nurture it, you water it, you let the sun in, all that stuff. And eventually the, the process begins, and I had to do a lot of, I'm, I don't know all the terminology. So apparently there's different processes per seed. So to say that just one process takes place would be wrong. There's multiple processes depending on which seed it is. I was like, oh, okay. So the process is what I'm going to use. The process begins... And then all of a sudden, this, this little sprout starts to grow. And eventually, it grows into whatever it's supposed to be, whether it's a fruit or it's a tree or whatever. But what, what about the seed? Like, if you were to dig up the plant and you were to go to the source, would, would, you, find, would you find the seed there anymore? One scientist I was reading this week, he described it like this. You can no longer find the seed because essentially... The seed has died to itself. It has become something else entirely. It actually has ceased to exist as its original self. I thought that was a really interesting way to say it. The seed has become something else entirely. But, but to get there, what did the seed have to do first? It, it essentially had to die. It essentially had to leave itself behind in order to become something else. 
And we've been exploring a statement here, mostly online, but we have been together exploring a statement where Jesus says that, that he has come into this world, has come to us to bring life and life to the full. And we've been asking questions like, what does that actually look like? That sounds great, Jesus, but what is life and life to the full? How does, how does one get there? If, if it's actually a destination to get to in the first place. We all long for life to be good. We all long for life to be fulfilling and, and right. But, but how often do we feel the ache that it's not quite good? Or it's not quite right? Or it's not as fulfilling as we thought it was going to be? Is there something we're missing? I don't know about you, but there are times I'm left wondering... Okay, great, Jesus, life and life to the full. I'm waiting for it, right? Like, if we're honest, we hear this invitation from Jesus, and there are moments when it feels like, that's, that's a great promise, Jesus, but that seems really far away. Is there something we're missing? If you have your Bibles, would you open up with me to Matthew chapter 16? Hear those pages rustle. We're going we're gonna to jump out. Of, we've been in Matthew 5 for, for most of this, but I want to jump into Matthew 16 here. Is that what I said? Did I say Matthew 16? Okay, good. We're going to jump right in here to a conversation, or right in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Matthew 16. Actually, I'm going to pray first before we go further. God, I just thank you. I thank you that we have your word to read. God, I, I just thank you that we have this power right in front of us, God, of, you, of your, your revealing word. God, the way that you speak and move through this is just, it's miraculous, really. So Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes? Holy Spirit, would you reveal something new to us today? Would you open our eyes? Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised, again, raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine that. He's got some courage, I'll tell you that. He began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. Then Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for, uh, for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
This is a massive turning point in, in the life and the ministry of Jesus. His followers, his, apprent- his apprentices, as we've, we've kind of used as a, as a different word or a better understanding of the word disciple, they have seen Jesus do outrageous and miraculous things. They have seen him heal the sick, bring the dead to life, feed the hungry. They know who he is. At this point, they know who he is. They know that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one from God who would free and deliver God's people for good. And these 12, these friends, these people are right at the heart of what Jesus is doing. They're right at the heart of the revolution. But then these close friends of Jesus, his followers, have this, what they would think, like this wildly unexpected conversation with Jesus. Now, we've talked about this before, but, but just for a minute, because we're looking at this situation in hindsight, right? Let's, let's get inside the heads of these disciples for a minute. What we see here in this conversation, especially for, between, between Peter and Jesus, are basically like these polarizing views of what the Messiah has actually come to do and how the Messiah will actually do it. So let's rewind and look at where, where this promise of the Messiah comes from. And that may help us understand basically the perception or the idea that these disciples hold as to what the Messiah has come to do. So this promise goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes back to the beginning. We read in Genesis that God creates and put, puts into motion a good world. Right? That's what we read in the Genesis narrative. Humanity, Adam and Eve, eventually... They selfishly decide that they want their own way over God, right? Like they decide, I can get to good on my own. God, I don't need you anymore. But God doesn't leave the story broken. Even though Adam and Eve decide this is what they want and it leaves the world broken, God doesn't leave it there. We read in Genesis 3.15 that, that God promises, and it's a really strange promise, but God promises that a seed of Eve... So a descendant from Eve would come and he would crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent would bite his heel. It's a really weird thing to say, right? It's like, okay, thanks, God. I appreciate that. Like, what does that mean? But this is the beginning of the promise where God is saying that he is going to deal with evil and death and decay and sin would be dealt with one day. This is the beginning of that promise. So we follow the story, and we, and we get to Abraham, and we've talked about Abraham a lot. Abraham is a man where God basically comes, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to heal the world through your family. This promise that I gave, I'm going to continue that promise through you and your family. So this promise is passed down through Abraham's generations and his, and his descendants. And we continue to follow that story. And we see leaders and we see kings rise and fall. And for example, we get, we get to King David. Most of us know the story of King David. What was, what was kind of like the, the way to describe David? There's a word, he was the man after God's own. Right, so he was a pretty good guy. If, if, if I had that, that title, I would think I would be doing pretty good. Anybody else? I would love to be, yeah, no. I think, I, think hearing, I think being called a man after God's own heart sounds pretty great. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, man. But unfortunately, even though David was a man after God's own heart and he was a good king, he, he wasn't the one who was promised. 
Unfortunately, we see this exact same selfishness that we encountered with Adam and Eve continue to wreak havoc on the world. Even under the best intentions and the good motivations, there's still this selfishness at the heart of it. And the brokenness just continues to spread. And in the midst of all of this, all of these broken kings and selfish kings, God continues his promise. God continues the promise that a king would come from the line of David, from David's family. But king after king following after the line of David just continues to live just ridiculously selfish lives, unlike us. Building their own kingdoms, chasing money and chasing power and chasing sex. Like you just read through the Bible, it's a mess. <laughs> and to the point, basically, where there's just, there's no more kings. Right? The kings just keep failing and eventually we, we read that the, the people of God are, are in slavery again. The people of God are ruled by somebody else. And during this extremely dark time, God would raise up prophets in the midst of the people. And God is reminding them, remember what I'm going to do. Remember the king that I'm going to raise up. And prophets like Isaiah specifically talk about that this promised king would come and he would receive the bite from the serpent. Remember that strange promise that God gave? That this coming king would receive the bite of the serpent. And this bite would be basically our selfishness. Like this, this bite that the, that, the, that the coming king would receive from, this, from the serpent is just this broken world. This selfishness that just continues to just wreak havoc. But, but this king would come and still crush the head of the serpent. A promised king would come from the line of David to come and deal with evil and free God's people. And so finally we get to this moment, I know it's a long backstory, but all of that that we just talked about, all of that framed how the disciples saw the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah was going to be a king like David, a military king savior who was going to come in with force or by force and he was going to wipe out the Roman Empire. He was going to break down the broken religious systems and every empire by force to free God's people. That was their understanding. And most of that is good. The freedom of God's people, absolutely. But their expectation of what the Messiah was coming to do was still very much rooted in that same selfishness. It was us against them. That was their understanding. All of this shaped how the followers of Jesus saw the Messiah. This was their upbringing. This was their family history. This was their family of origin. This is why Peter, honestly, is so upset with Jesus. He's so upset with him because he's wanting to go into Jerusalem because Peter knows, Jesus, if you go into Jerusalem, this isn't going to be good for anybody. Their enemies are in Jerusalem. In Peter's mind, going into Jerusalem meant Jesus would probably be arrested and it would be all over. Basically, the Messiah would fail. In Peter's framework, if Jesus is arrested, suffers, and dies... Honestly, he's probably not the Messiah at all. Like, imagine being in that place. Of course Peter reacted the way he did. Peter would be wrong, and Peter would be stupid to have given his life to this man who ended up not being the Messiah. For Peter, a suffering Messiah was no Messiah at all. 
Sure, life would be, wouldn't be easy for the Messiah, and not everyone would agree, and sure, there would be some level of, of maybe some sort of suffering. But in the end, the Messiah was coming as the son of David, the son of a military king, to basically wipe out his enemies. Joke's on you. You made fun of me once, now I'm coming at you with the sword. So any suffering would be met with revenge and violence. That's how Peter understood it. Leon Morris, he was a theologian I was reading this week, or is a theologian. He said this, speaking about Peter, he has seen something of Jesus' greatness. And because he has seen that greatness, it is inconceivable to him that Jesus would undergo the humiliation of which he's just spoken. For Peter, it is unthinkable that the one he has just pronounced the Messiah, the son of the living God, should be rejected and killed. How could the Jewish nation reject the Jewish Messiah? So he says, rightly, this will never happen to you. This is so far, the words from Peter, this is so far from the heart of Jesus and the heart of what the Messiah has actually come to do. What does, how does Jesus respond? He says, get Behind me, Satan. Imagine hearing that from Jesus. Like, ugh. Morris later writes, Indeed, Peter was taken up, or has taken up essentially the position of Satan in the temptation narrative. The evil one had tried to get Jesus to take the easy, spectacular way to avoid the path of suffering. And that, in essence, was what Peter was advising Jesus to do. Jesus goes back to the very beginning in this moment. And he's confronting the selfishness that the snake tempted Eve with. And it's, it's basically this. Is God's way actually good? Is God's way actually good? Jesus, the selfless Messiah, confronts the very same selfishness inside of Peter. The Messiah coming and violently taking out the enemy by force, it simply accomplishes nothing. All it would create is another force built on selfishness that another group would eventually need to rise up and take down. Which, if we look down through history, is... It happens time after time after time after time after time. But then Jesus gives this invitation right here. He doesn't just leave it there. He gives an invitation. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, my apprentice, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I love how another translation says it. It says, you must not just die to yourself, but you must give up your own way. What a good way to say that. You must give up your own way. So to fully understand what the Messiah came to do, we have to let our preconceptions go. Why does, why does Peter have to come and die? Why does Peter have to give up his own way? Not because Jesus is a villain and wants to make it hard for Peter. It's because Jesus wants Peter to truly see the power and the good that he is inviting Peter into. Peter is made for so much more than being angry and full of hate. He is made to be an agent of the self-giving love that he has just witnessed Jesus living into his whole time. 
Jesus isn't trying to make life difficult for Peter. He's actually trying to invite him into life. That is what will do real good in the world. That is what it means to really be Jesus' disciple, to love the way that Jesus loves. But to do that, Peter has to leave himself behind. Peter has to die. And I don't think that Jesus has ever stopped confronting our idea of what he's supposed to do. I don't think Jesus has ever stopped confronting our preconceptions as to what the Messiah is supposed to do. I can read this conversation, as I'm sure you can in hindsight, between Jesus and Peter, and you're thinking to yourself, come on, Peter, get with the program. How can you not see this? But Jesus is always confronting how selfishly I want him to fit into what I think he's supposed to do. Whether it's revenge or it's my view of justice that I need to carry out, I can so easily justify my behavior or my thoughts assuming Jesus would do the same as me. And maybe, honestly, he would feel the same way as me. But, but I think Jesus confronts in Peter and what he confronts in me is not necessarily how I'm feeling in the moment. Maybe it is, but I think more than that, it's how I respond. What I do next. I think that's where selfishness and brokenness reside. What comes out of me next? Someone cuts me off while I'm on the highway to St. John. So, <laughs> amen. <laughs> Someone doesn't see me at the grocery store and they jump in line with their cart and they just swipe right by me. Or someone posts an obnoxious comment after something I've said. Or someone makes fun of me because of something I've said or, or belief I have or a conviction I have. What happens next? Well, I'll tell you what, my gut reaction wants to respond and respond back real good. Right? You have no right cutting me off on the road. Do you realize how much danger you're putting me in? Didn't you see me standing there behind the spice aisle waiting for the next place in line? Right? You guys know. Hey, I'm right by the basil, guys. Like, can you not see me? I know I got one little inch out of my cart, but this is what I've got to do to social distance. Or I write a sarcastic remark back, well, you know what? They'll know. I showed them. Or I belittle someone who made fun of me because I want to feel bigger. Yeah, I showed them. Now I feel better. But isn't that exactly what Peter was trying to get Jesus to do? Oh. Isn't that what Peter was trying to get Jesus to do? Jesus, you realize if we go into Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. And this is all going to be for nothing. This will all fail and be for nothing because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. <laughs> you have the right to stand up for yourself and get back at them. They've made your life hell. Jesus, they're the Pharisees. They don't know anything. We're supposed to take down the Roman Empire. They're our enemies. We're supposed to take them out. That is what Peter does next. That's Peter's response. He lashes out because his view of Jesus cannot wrap itself around the selfless Messiah that Jesus actually is. 
And I know this is a really confrontational moment. This isn't, welcome back to church, here to pick me up teaching. <laughs> Come and die, right? Like, but it's, it's amazing how God leads things. Like last week and this week, this was planned weeks or months in advance about this is where we were going to land. And I think it really speaks into the moment we live in right now. Jesus basically says this, if you want to follow me, Peter, you have to leave your way behind. You got to follow me into whatever happens next. Following me means you follow me, not me following you. And Peter, it's a daily thing. Taking up your cross means carrying it every day. He didn't say take up your cross and then leave it at the end of your day. No, he said take it up and follow me. And I know that sounds hard, and I know that sounds like not good news, but I promise if you follow me that way, you're going to find everything you were made for. The only way the selfishness and the brokenness in our world will be dealt with is by self-giving love. It has to be a different way. Any other way would just honestly just be selfishness against selfishness. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Isn't that what Jesus said to Peter? Because Peter still doesn't get it in what happens when Jesus is arrested. The first thing he does is grab his sword. And look in the, I don't know, I always picture, maybe I'm wrong, but I always picture Jesus like roll his eyes. In that moment, like, oh, come on, you're messing this up again. And, and what is, but what does Jesus do? He just gets down and he heals his enemy's ear. And he turns to Peter and he's like, man, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Do you still not see it? I can be so selfish. My goodness. Nothing reveals that more than when you get married. Right? We can, it's, it, we can be honest here. <laughs> and then I really, really learned how selfish I was when, I had, when we had Adeline and Olive. All of a sudden, right, your life is no longer about yourself. Right? All of a sudden, yeah, I want to watch this. I want to go away and do this cool thing. And then you've got two kids screaming in your ear. And it's like, oh, yeah, right. My first job is to love you with all my heart. All of a sudden, your life is no longer about yourself. And we don't like that. <laughs> we really don't. I'm going to invite Michelle to come up. We don't like that. We don't like having to be selfless. You know, when we're no longer happy in our marriage, so we want another one. When we think we deserve that car, so we buy it even though we don't have the money for it. You know, when we think so-and-so deserves to pay for what they did, so we seek out our own version of justice because it seems better than God's version of it. When we have the right... We have the right to say or do whatever you want. Absolutely. So we do it. Even though it leaves a trail of dead bodies behind us. Honestly, most of us who are followers of Jesus in the room came to Jesus when we were at our most broken, didn't we? I did. My goodness. I, I didn't need Jesus to convince me that he had a better way. 
I, I just, I knew I was dead and broken. I didn't, Jesus could have asked me to do the wildest thing. And it was like, it's better than what I've been doing. So Jesus, I'm yours. We all come in broken. But, but what happens when things start going better? Right? Like what happens when we continue our journey with Jesus and it's been going so good. And then all of a sudden we find Jesus confronting something we said or something we did. But Jesus, I thought we were good. I already came and I died. I thought, this, I thought everything was supposed to be good now. But I think what we see here in this moment with Peter and Jesus is that we never stop giving up our own way. See, life and life to the full, it only happens when we let our own life go. We can't sometimes get to life and life to the full because we're holding on to our own too much. Last week, I asked us a question, and I want to ask us, I want to ask it to us again today because I think it gets to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. And it's this question. Am I a redemptive participant in what Jesus came to do? Or to ask it this way, we've been kind of unofficially been asking this question since Christmas, and it's this, are we walking near our shepherd? I think this is, I think this is a critical question for us as followers of Jesus right now. Because as I said already, as we were praying right after worship, there are so many causes to fight for in absolutely any direction right now. And it has left, I don't know about you, but it's left me quite confused. Like, what does a follower of Jesus say right now? What does a follower of Jesus do right now? And I'm not saying all are bad, and I'm not saying all are good, but what I am saying is I think there's a question underneath it all that as followers of Jesus, we have to reckon with. And it's this, if I do this, am I walking near my shepherd, or am I walking into it expecting Jesus to follow me? And if the answer is I'm walking into this alone, that should stop us real quick. Because being a redemptive participant in what Jesus came to do is the absolute best life we could live. Or is it a moment that Jesus is inviting us to come and die? I don't like those moments. Believe me, my, if there's a justice fight to fight, sign me stinking up. Like Ken and I will talk about this all the time. Our justice meter is just all the way at 10, all the time. And that's sometimes really good, but there are times when Jesus says, yeah, but you need to let that go because I have a better plan in store and you're just getting in the way. You're picking up your sword when I'm asking you to love. Am I walking near my shepherd? You know, this was never about Adam or Eve. This wasn't about Abraham or King David. This isn't even about Peter and it's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. When we let our lives declare the goodness of God, when we let our lives declare the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, we are experiencing life and life to the full. That is what God had in mind in the very beginning. Go back and read Adam and Eve living in the goodness of God in the Garden of Eden. Everything about their lives declared God's goodness. That is what God designed life to be, but we broke it. We broke it because we liked our version of good better. 
So when Jesus invites us into life and life to the full, he's inviting us into a life of redemption, of love, of goodness, of hope, of forgiveness and joy and real justice in the name of Jesus. We have to let our own selfish version of all of those things die if we're gonna experience it though. That's the invitation. Because here's the crazy thing about the gospel. Here's the crazy thing about the good news of Jesus. Just as much as Peter was invited to be a friend and a follower of Jesus and sit at the table, so was the Roman Empire. And that's the part we don't like. <laughs> Peter and his enemies were both invited to come and sit at the table with Jesus. That's what the self-giving love of Jesus does. The line between friend and enemy begins to just get real blurry. Why? Because Jesus begins to heal the things that our world just can't seem to heal on their own. No more us versus them. No more me versus you. No more friend and enemy. That's what life and life to the full looks like. That is what Jesus called the kingdom of God. That's why sometimes it feels so confusing for us as followers of Jesus to know where to fit into politics. Anybody else with me? Like, okay, you know, like I'm, I hold these values as a follower of Jesus, but I don't really know where to put it because I just feel like both of them are just way off base. And we get angry, don't we? We get angry when somebody does, hey, that, that, that doesn't line up with what Jesus said. The way of Jesus simply does not fit into our categories. Jesus isn't a conservative and he's not a liberal. He's neither. Jesus sits on the throne. Our hope is not in a better political system. Our hope is in King Jesus, period. And that's hard because the political system is way more tangible, <laughs> right? It's easier to put our hope in that. I think one of the best ways that we as followers of Jesus in this time can live under the reign of King Jesus is by showing self-giving love. Show the world how good he is. Show the world how much hope there is in him. Show Graham and Ann how much love there is in King Jesus. May it shock them. May it even, may it even like offend them. Hey, why are, you, why are you loving me so much? We're supposed to be enemies. Yeah, but you know what? Jesus calls me to love you. And honestly, I'm gritting my teeth through it because I don't like it. <laughs> Right, but that's, that's the real invitation that Jesus invites us into. It's not easy. Do you think it would, like it, it took Peter forever to figure this out. He doesn't just say to Jesus, oh, thanks man, got it. Following Jesus, loving Jesus and giving his life to learn from Jesus takes Peter to the absolute end of himself. Peter comes to the end of his understandings, his opinions, his ideals, and Peter, Peter essentially dies to himself. Jesus, I've got nothing left. And when that happens, when that happens, the Holy Spirit begins to absolutely transform Peter from the inside out. And we're gonna explore that more next week. But before that could happen, before that could happen, Peter had to die. A seed is never meant to just stay a seed. Eventually it rots and it, and it just is not good for anything. A seed is meant to die and become something else entirely.